I actually got to draw something this week, so that makes me happy. I don't, I, uh, I forget to draw things, and I don't have inspiration to draw things, so I just don't most of the time. But I was thinking about uh, the jokes that I've been making about the Super Bowl, uh, which made me think about football players and how they might relate to uh, this particular sermon today. So I want to, <clears throat> I want to do something with you. Uh, I got two two football players up there, and uh, <clears throat> they though they have quarterback numbers, they don't really look like much of quarterbacks. But uh, let's imagine that the Philadelphia Eagles are uh, are without a player, and they've got these two guys sitting on the bench. And the coach has to decide. You're the coach. You get to decide who's going into the game for the injured player. Okay. The guy on the left, he has the playbook memorized. He could uh, speak it to you. He could uh, memorized in like Italian and French. And uh, you know, he is he's he's got it totally and utterly perfected in his brain. Uh, he also has spent so much time memorizing the playbook that he does not practice. Um, he, he also doesn't go to the weight room. He's, uh, it's a miracle that he looks like this. And, uh, but he has got, he's got the playbook absolutely, utterly, and totally memorized. Okay. The guy on the right, uh, your second option does not have the playbook memorized. He's maybe got two plays memorized and only one of which is he actually involved in. Um, <clears throat> but he plays in practice and he has some game time experience and he does go to the weight room and he does go to meetings and all that sort of thing. He doesn't, he's not stuck with his head inside the playbook. Okay, so this is your choice. These are your two players to choose from. Uh, just by a show of hands, who would choose the first guy? What's the score? We're behind. I don't know. What do you matter? What does it matter? Where yeah. <laughs> No, he's not the quarterback. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All right, fine. Okay, he's on offense. He's a receiver. You're behind. And again, the guy on the left does not practice, has the playbook memorized. The guy on the right does practice, not very good at memorizing plays. All right. Okay, so which guy you got? By a show of hands, the number 11. Who are you gonna, who's going to put him in the game? Wow, you're smarter than I thought. Um, all right, number 12, who's going to put him in the game? A few of you are just not going to put anybody. We're going with 10 players. These guys are awful. We're just forget, forget number 12, forget 11. We'll just go with what we got. Okay, that's kind of funny. Uh, all right, so it's a bit of a trick question. In my imagination, like number 11 just can't look like that. So if you were able to like x-ray him, this is actually what he would look like. Right, he's just rented a like blow one of those blow up suits, you know, to look like. Because uh, if he's not gonna, I don't know, he's not gonna look like that if he's not doing anything other than reading the playbook. Okay, so I want to go back actually and reread the end here of uh, of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. This is this is the real the ending to the sermon. Uh, a lot of times. I think people think of the Sermon on the Mount as just Matthew chapter 5, but, but the, the actual story does not break up uh, anything between 5-1 and uh, 7, like 29 or 30, something like that. Okay, So this is the end of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, even though you've got chapters 
splitting things up, this is the end of the, the big sermon that he's given. Uh, and so it starts this way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Lord, Lord, did we not memorize the playbook? <clears throat> that's, my, that's my take. Uh, and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. It's a little harsh. Um, <laughs> although where they're going is probably harsher than being called evildoers. Um, anyway, everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them and will be, a wise, will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching. For he taught them as, ha as one having authority and not as their scribes. Um, I grew up. And I don't know if you grew up this way, those of you who grew up in, in the church, but I grew up, we loved number 11, right? We, we loved people who had the playbook memorized. We had absolutely every place of priority on the people who studied the Bible the most, people who had the most of the Bible uh, memorized. And what really drove me nuts as I got a little older and started to read the Bible a little bit more for myself was I realized that Jesus said all these things that his church didn't do, right? So we were, we were, we were like these, these big auditoriums of people who knew the playbook forwards and backwards but didn't do the stuff that Jesus said you must do. This stuff in, in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is not, not optional stuff for the community of God. It's not optional. This is, this is who we must be. We have to adopt this as our identity and as our practice. And I just, I, I feel like I grew up surrounded by people who had kind of for one reason or another had just neglected these things. And I would ruffle feathers. I have ruffled many feathers in my life by suggesting that we maybe try and do a few of these things. People don't like them. Player 11, if you told him, go get in the game, he'd be like, no, 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 I'm here to study the playbook. <laughs> if, if he's anything like uh, some of the, the, the Christians that I, I grew up being around, it's like, no, I don't, I don't want to go and serve those types of people. No, I don't want to give up a Bible study so that I can get to know my neighbors. No, I don't, I don't want to, to turn the other cheek. That sounds crazy. And so... Uh, and we have a problem because, unfortunately, this is, this is somewhat prevalent in Christian history. I don't have to tell you that probably, but we, just, we have this kind of problem where it's gotten into our heads that Christianity is a system of doctrinal beliefs and not so much a system of doing things. And I think we're living now in, a, in an era where we're going to push the pendulum to the other side and we'll, we'll forget about some of the beliefs and we'll kind of overdo maybe some of the things that we're called to do. I don't, I don't know, that's kind of what I did here, right? I've got these two extremes. That's not what, neither of these guys is ideal, right? 
the ideal football player knows the playbook well and also plays the game well, right? Uh, and that's the ideal church, I think. The ideal community of Christians are people who understand uh, what Jesus has had to say, who, who appreciate what Jesus has had to say, who perhaps even memorize some things that Jesus has had to say, but who also put those things into practice. And we have this problem, though, because we've had kind of centuries of, of a lot of Christians who are, are in there in the head game, but not so much in the life game. And uh, there's not much you can do about that, right? I mean, I'm not gonna, we're not going to kick everybody out who doesn't. I'm mean, Where's the quota? Right, So you've got three quarters of the sermon that you're putting into practice, and this person has a quarter of the sermon that they're putting in. Like, who's going to say, yeah, you get to stay and you, you're out? Right? You can't do that. That's impractical. It's kind of against, actually, one of the things that's in the sermon. <clears throat> so you can't do that. But we, we have this kind of problem with our appeal, so to speak. Um, because, amazingly enough, most people who don't believe in Jesus know the stuff that's in these three chapters, uh, because I think partially because it's so astoundingly good. It is some of the best uh, ethical teaching in human history, if not the best ethical teaching in human history. Some of the things that Jesus says are absolutely, utterly unique to him. No other moral philosopher of any other religion asked their followers to do some of the things that Jesus asked his followers to do in this um, in these three chapters, in this sermon. And so uh, there's this big published study recently about, uh, <clears throat> so you know we've got millennials who are kind of my age, people people who kind of came of age at the turn of the millennium. Well now, uh, thankfully everyone is stop, stopping with the microscope being on people like me, and now we're going to research eh, like crazy people who are younger than me, which is called Generation Z. Okay, so there's this Big published study that came out this week or last or the week before, and uh, and the the percentage of Generation Z that thinks of Christianity as as part of their life, they they adhere um, to the teachings and to faith in Christ, is uh, only like half or something of of the generation before that, and so we're like that's just happening, and and I think one of the reasons. There are a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because we, we have had such a prevalent history of prioritizing and giving honor to player number 11. Again, there are a lot of reasons, but this is one of them. And Jesus happened to say that that was going to be something that would happen, right? He said, the world will know you by what? By loving one another. And that's part of this thing. If We haven't done a very good job at that. Not when I say we, I'm not talking about you, but we, the big global or even just American church. And so Jesus says these words that are, are really important that we're going to focus in on. We've already started focusing in on it. And, and he says, everyone who, then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a person who built their house on rock. <clears throat> Building your house on rock, what does that, what does that mean? Um, what does that look like for us? I grew up, yeah, very solid foundation. And and what I want to point out is that Jesus says that that what is that foundation? It's these words of mine living in in your life, right? 
I've had um, another kind of coming of age moment was when I realized that this was not about trusting God necessarily. Don't get me wrong. Trusting God is good. I'm not telling you not to do that. But this particular passage is not necessarily about that as much as it is putting into practice the Sermon on the Mount, putting into practice what Jesus has just said. These words of mine, if you put them into practice, that is your practice of digging a deep and solid foundation. And digging a foundation is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, this is that's the sermon underneath. A, you get you got it anyway. Um, so the uh, man, you guys are not laughing today. Um, I'm trying. I'm gonna keep trying. the The idea that the houses have these foundations. Then, and Abby and I, a few few years ago, when we were we were shopping for a house, there was this house that we loved that uh, was super cheap, and we were like, "Why would this be so cheap? It's just such a fantastic house." And then it turned out that it didn't have a foundation, and so that banks won't loan you money for a house without a foundation because it's a really bad idea in a place that's scared to death of having a gigantic uh, earthquake. Like that house is not going to stand. Right, and so the bank doesn't want to be held liable for that. So if you want that house, you got to buy it with cash. And so the process, uh, and it's extraordinarily expensive to then add a foundation to a house that doesn't have a foundation. So foundations have always been a big deal. Most of the people that Jesus was talking to probably did not have a foundation on their homes. Honestly, uh, digging a deep foundation was something that would. You normally had to pay, you had to have enough money to pay a whole crew of people to go and get, get working on doing that. Because what you had to do was uh, either build a foundation out of stone, or what Jesus is proposing here is something even more radical, and that is to dig down to bedrock, right? To dig and get to rock. Because he doesn't say the man built his house on stones, he says he built his house on the rock. There's a digging deep down. So this is a luxury to be able to build a house like that in this world. And, he, uh, and yet it's a luxury that comes at a great cost and that is essential if you want your house to stand. So too for us. We certainly will not go wrong if we put our kind of intellectual and heart trust in God. And that is part of the sermon is what he wants us to do. I talked about that last week. Right, that, that what he wants us to do is believe and understand that the nature of God is a good father. And that's in this passage as well, right? Who among you, uh, if, you're, if your son asked for a, a loaf of bread, would give him a stone, right? And so if you know how to give good things, you who are evil know how to give good things, how much more your good father in heaven. And so trusting God and trusting in God's goodness is definitely a part of this. But when we struggle, when the storms come, I think we are designed we are designed to live the way that Jesus has described in this book in this sermon. We are designed to thrive during difficult times by loving others. We are designed to survive when we are hurting, when we are in pain, when we have uh, tremendous challenges. That's the time when we all want to recoil and to lock ourselves up in, uh, in our homes, and to, to lick our wounds, so to speak. But what Jesus is saying 
is that this rock, this rock of these words, turning the other cheek when it's really, really hard, loving your enemy when it's really, really hard, honoring those who you might not normally honor, taking the log out of your own eye, that's not easy work. These, these things will stand the test of time. These things will see you through struggle and heartache. As a pastor, one of, this is one of the most difficult things I have had to teach and try to get people to really believe because when you hurt, you don't want to do this. When you hurt, you don't want to put these things into practice because these things are already extraordinarily difficult things and it's just, it's toe upside down and so totally counterintuitive. You're like, I'm exhausted. I am, I am not capable. I need rest. And yet, in my own experience, in my own times, I have found that these teachings are extraordinarily trustworthy during difficult times, even when I am on the edge of being totally broken, when I find myself reaching out, uh, sort of just barely hanging on to the hem of, Christ, hem of Christ's robe, putting these things into practice in the midst of life's deepest challenges, I find that good things happen. Not only do I survive, but these things allow me to thrive. And it is when I let go of them and when I say I just need to take care of myself, I just need to, just need to, to hole up and do this or that, that when I do that, I start to break down. Because I'm not designed for that. I'm not designed for that. There's this kind of totally upside-down switch that Jesus wants us to make. That if we will do these things, if we will take them seriously, even when the storm comes, because it will come, it will absolutely come. Sometimes it will come way more often than we'd like it to. Sometimes it just doesn't leave. It just keeps on storming. Jesus wants us to remember that the words, you remember in the chapter 4, so the, the chapter just before uh, the Sermon on the Mount starts, when, when Satan is trying to get Jesus to eat bread, right? When Satan's trying to get Jesus to eat bread, Jesus says back to him, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Father. I would apply that very same thing to the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes we want the kind of easy fix. Let me just eat the loaf of bread so the hunger will go away. But when we put the very words that come from the mouth of our Savior into practice, when we feast on Matthew 5, 6, and 7, good things happen. It produces fruit. So I want, uh, in some ways today's sermon is, is really extraordinarily simple. I, uh, I want you to, to take, you've got the spot in your worship folder for sermon notes, I, I'd love it if you would write in there, is I will practice, dot, dot, dot. And then I'm going to go through uh, some examples of some things that you might practice. You might practice putting into practice. And uh, you don't have to take any of the ones that I highlight. We're going to have kind of a moment of some silent prayer after the sermon's over so that you can really reflect what is it in your life that you need to focus on. What is it that God may be calling you to put into practice, to take a deeper look and say, this is something that must that I must do. And so uh, I've got 
I've got like eight of them that I'm going to kind of fly through, I think. But just to give you, just to remind you where the sermon has been and what all has been in it. So Bruce talked, uh, when he, he was the one who talked to you about the Beatitudes, and, and I think the theme that kind of came out of that was, was this idea of honoring people who maybe are not normally honored. Right? The poor in spirit are not normally people who are honored. The meek are not normally people who are honored. And even the merciful, in a lot of ways, are not very honored people. Peacemakers are still, to this day, not very honored people. Peacemakers are often the most hated because both sides hate them. Uh, <clears throat> and so there's this sense, maybe you need to take that Beatitudes. And, and uh, I use the word class, but I don't just mean socioeconomic class. I mean all kinds of class. Uh, spiritual class, um, different kinds of gifts, though, all the, any kind of class that you can think of. Another, another one is uh, this idea of putting the kingdom on a lampstand. Um, there's a, you know, this little light of mine sort of stuff. Very simple, overlooked passage where we, we maybe don't think about it as being a thing that we need to practice, but really what does it look like to make sure that Jesus' teachings, that Jesus' lifestyle, that Jesus' sermon is burning brightly for others to actually see and be aware of and acknowledge. Part of that, he also calls it a city on a hill. The idea of a city on a hill that's lit up is that if somebody's traveling at night, they might be able to find their way because most of the time, uh, a city at night is not lit up in this time time period. Uh, so I think part of this message is your 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 the sense of who Jesus is is going outward, but it's calling people to you. People will be drawn to that light and know this is a safe place. This is a place where I can go and uh, and be taken care of. This is a really big one that Jesus will return to at the end of the book of Matthew. Where he talks about uh, cleaning the inside rather than just looking good, and he gives a bunch of examples of that. Right uh, there, he gives the example of uh, that you—it's not just that you shouldn't murder someone; it's that you can't hate them either. Right, and it's not just that you can't uh, cheat on your spouse; it's that you can't, inside of your heart, lust after someone else. And it's not just uh, that you. Um, should and then there's the thing about fasting where he says you you shouldn't like go and just let the whole world know that you're fasting you should uh cover that up so that that what's happening is on the inside good things good intentions are being drawn to the surface and then the hardest of all i think they're all hard but, but this one is just very difficult Loving my enemies. He actually says in there that we should pray for them. I think that's really the key to that particular little text. It's very difficult as a Christian to love someone you're not willing to pray for. And I find that in the process of praying for someone who has wronged me or somebody who I have doubts about or biases towards, when I pray, when I kneel and I pray and I humble myself before God, I find that he often changes me, changes my perspective of who that person is. So I don't think it's unintentional that Jesus calls us and asks us to pray for those who persecute us. Then there's the giving in secret. Uh, you know, I talked last week about how there was a trumpet in the, in the um, 
in the temple. So where you gave your tithe, you tossed the coins into the trumpet so that the it would just echo throughout the temple that you had given a whole lot. And if you only had this one coin and you tossed it in, everybody knew you just gave one coin. And so Jesus says, you know, don't worry about that. Don't do that in public. Give your alms, your, your giving to the impoverished. Give that in secret. It also tends, that tends to dignify and honor the person you're giving it to as well. Because then they're not publicly shamed either. Then there's a really uh, interesting, good teaching on, on forgiving. When Jesus is talking about prayer, and, uh, and you think he's talking about prayer, and then all of a sudden he sort of makes this twist and turn and says uh, this thing about forgiving, that, that the way you forgive others will be the way that God forgives you. Um, this is an extraordinarily difficult thing for some of us have been really wounded and hurt. So maybe it's, maybe it's the thing you need to write down. Maybe it's the thing I need to write down. And there's a bit about uh, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve money and God. And the, the implication of that is my money needs to be put to God's use. Now, I'm not up here to tell you you ought to give more money to the church. That's not necessarily what that means. That means is, is the way you're spending, if, if the trajectory of God's will and, and kingdom is this way, is the trajectory of your spending of money also that way? Can we so that the the idea is that your money must submit itself to one true master as well? Another one is uh, self evaluation rather than judgmentalism. This uh, this is from today. What we read today about the log in your eye versus the speck in your neighbor's eye. Some people really want to interpret this as talking about uh, judging in terms of people going to heaven or going to hell. I don't take it that way. Most of the time when you read in the New Testament the word judge, it is talking about that. It's talking about the end of time and whether you will be, uh, whether you will be condemned or will be justified. That's typically what the word judging means. But in Jesus' narrative here, in his example, he's talking about a log versus a speck. Right. So if I'm condemned... And the other person is condemned. That's not me having a log and them having a speck. That's like us both having a log. Right? This is about self-evaluation of flaws. This is about lording it over someone. It's about getting involved in someone's discipline before God without recognizing that I too am a sinner. I too am someone who is broken before God. I too have this log. The idea is that when we relate to one another... If, if we're going to help somebody else, we have to acknowledge that we too are in need of help. It is this sense of equality, or even not just equality, but lowering oneself, which is very consistent with other things in the New Testament, right? That when I look at somebody else and I look at their problems, if I'm going to go to them and I'm going to help them and I'm going to help point something out, I have to kind of earn that right to do that by lowering myself and coming into touch with my own needs, that when I go to them, I do not go to them above them or even really beside them, but I go to them as a humble servant. And so self-evaluation rather than judgmentalism. And finally, uh, trusting that God is a good father, which I think is a little bit of an umbrella over the whole thing. Why do we do these things? Why are we willing to take these risks? Why would I 
uh, be willing to love my enemy? Why would I be willing to turn the other cheek? That sounds like I'm just opening myself up to danger. That sounds like I'm just opening myself up to pain and heartache and, uh, and destruction. That's why I think this, this is the overarching theme, is that if you ask, if your child asks you for a loaf of bread, you would not give them a stone. Jesus is Jesus reveals to us that God is a good father at his core and wants and desires to bring good to us even when he raises the standard extraordinarily high. And when we live into that and we trust that the spirit is moving us in that direction, <clears throat> God will do good. Good fruit, not bad fruit. He will bring life rather than death. There's a, there's a passage that I was thinking about as I was kind of wrapping up my prep for this morning. Uh, this passage came to mind out of Revelation. So Revelation 2 and most of 3 or the beginning of 3 is uh, these letters to these seven churches, right? And the seven churches are, are the letters are essentially these letters from, from Jesus, and he is kind of criticizing these seven churches for a variety of different things that they're engaging in. But at the end of all of those is a line that is something like this. Okay, Jesus says something along the line of this. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's this idea that we have to conquer the forces around us. That term conquer, I mean, I, I imagine like somebody with like a big club knocking somebody down and standing over them and, and saying, you're mine now or something, or your land is mine now, or your property is mine now, or something like that. That's the sense of conquering that I have. And so we can maybe read these passages about conquering at the end of the New Testament with these letters that Jesus has given to them, but, uh, but that I don't think is what Jesus means by conquering. I think when we honor people who the world doesn't honor, we're conquering. I think when we decide that we will not hate people, we won't just not kill them, but we won't hate them either, we're conquering. I think that when we love our enemies, when we turn the other cheek, when we are gracious and forgiving, we are conquering. I think that when we are trusting that at the center of the universe is a good, benevolent, kind God who wants to be our father and not just some abstract being, we are conquering. So whatever it is that is around you, whatever storm has surrounded you, I ask you to put your trust, put your trust into Jesus, put your trust that what he has asked us to do, what he has taught us to do is good enough to see you through whatever storm you face now. I ask us as a church that as we face storms, as we see uh, budgets go up and down, as we see attendance go up and down, as we see whatever circumstance, as we see new, new roofs go up and new carpets be put in, that we would trust that the teachings of Christ are still good enough, that they are still a firm and lasting foundation, that we would trust that this good Father is with us and is ready and willing to lead us. The real beauty of this, I'll end with this idea, 
The real beauty of this is that I think the Gospels are unanimous in saying this is not all our responsibility. Right? It's, not, it's not just you that's supposed to do that. If it was, like that's just crazy to ask you to do all these things. We've been given help, right? The first help is the advocate, the Holy Spirit, this idea that the Spirit would uh, teach us and guide us and empower us to conquer in the way that Jesus has taught us, in the way that Jesus calls us to, to be that, G- that Jesus and his Spirit and his character would live inside us through the Spirit's activity in the world. That's the one help. The second help is the people to your left and to your right. The second help is the people to your left and to your right. If, if I really am faced with a place where someone hits me on one cheek, I hope that I have a close enough relationship with you that before I even think about turning the other cheek to them, maybe I reach out to you. Because I don't think anybody's going to literally hit me on the face. You know what I mean? Like, so I probably have time in between being hit one time and hit the second time. Uh, metaphorically, I want to look. I want to have the kind of relationship where I can look to you and I can say, "Will you help me turn the other cheek? Will you help me think of creative ways and ideas that I can turn the other cheek in this relationship? Will you help pray for me, be my brother and my sister in this challenge, in the midst of this particular storm?" So again, we're going to have uh, a few moments of silence for you to pray. And ask, ask Jesus, what do you want me to practice? Where in my life could I produce good fruit if I would look deeper at some of these things that you have taught in these chapters? I will begin that prayer out loud and then I'll step down and Tim will give you a few moments. Jesus, I, <clears throat> I thank you so much for these words, these captivating, amazing, radical, extraordinarily difficult words. And I just confess that that my flesh is very weak. I don't really want to do this most of the time. 99.9% of the time I don't really want to do it. So I need to lean on you. I ask you to give me that desire. God, I ask for each of us that we we would each look to you now. We would hear your voice whispering to us, follow me this direction. Come this way. Help us to be the kind of church that doesn't conquer with numbers and, I don't know, money and power and those such things. Help us to be the kind of church that that conquers through love, kindness, gentleness, and mercy, and peacemaking, and humility. Help us be that kind of person and that kind of church, God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.